Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. Among the presentations we see in the emergency department, few command the same respect as seizure. It is, in itself, both a diagnostic dilemma and, at times, a therapeutic nightmare. On one end of the spectrum, we see patients all the time with medication non-compliance or simply poorly controlled epilepsy. We'll find a low valproate level, top them up, follow up outpatient neuro, see you later. But hiding in a sea of benign causes are the sinister. There's brain bleeds, trauma, lethal toxins. Unfortunately, the list goes on and on. There's a reason it's the very first domino to fall in the dreaded sequence, seizure, coma, death. And as if seizure wasn't difficult enough to diagnose, it can be nuanced to manage. Sure, lots self-abort or love an IM dose of midazolam, but ask anyone who's been down the propofol route and you're not likely to have forgotten the time they stared down a patient who just wouldn't stop. Today, we're going to explore the world of seizure in the ED. With me, I have epilepsy and seizure expert, neurologist and researcher, Dr. Eileen Reed. So, uh, Dr. Reed, could you just give us a little bit of your professional background? Hi, so I am a neurologist at the University Health Network based out of the Toronto Western Hospital, and I am a epileptologist. So in my clinical practice, I primarily see patients with epilepsy, both in the clinic and in our inpatient epilepsy monitoring unit. And I also run a basic science lab investigating some of the mechanisms behind certain types of epilepsy, including post-traumatic epilepsy. Epileptologist. That's the first time I've said that word. That's a great word. It is a great word. Yeah, love it. And another new voice to EM cases, my EM colleague from Sinai Health Sciences in Toronto, Dr. Paul Koblick. Now, the seed for this podcast came up during February's EM cases course when Paul had prepared an amazingly educational simulation for day two of the course. I was so impressed with the deep dive he did into the literature in preparation for the sim that I asked him if he wanted to record a main podcast episode on it, and thankfully he obliged. Thank you so much, Paul. Welcome to EM Cases. Thanks for having me. So let's just jump into our first case. A 52-year-old female with a history of epilepsy, otherwise healthy, presents to your ED drowsy and confused one hour after a witness seizure. Her husband was awakened at 6 a.m. that day by the odd gurgling noises she was making. He noticed at first that her head was deviated to the left and that the left arm was stiffened, which then progressed to generalized body jerking and unresponsiveness for three minutes. She's been on clobazam and carbamazepine for years and has, as far as her husband knows, been compliant with her medications. So Dr. Reed You've taken histories of patients with epilepsy a kajillion times. In the emergency department, we do quite often, but I'm sure there's some nuances that you can teach us. So can you just take us through the questions that you typically ask to kind of sort these patients out and some of the sort of key historical features that you think ED docs should find out about? 
Sure. So I think one of the most important things to try and figure out is getting a good description of the seizure, um, both from the patient and from any witness. So what was the first thing that she noticed? Did she have any warning? And basically, I guess, what's the last thing she remembered before she went unresponsive and then getting a good description from, from the witness? And what I'm really trying to figure out is whether this seizure was her typical seizure or whether there was anything sort of unusual about it that would make me uh, more worried that, that something new or there's some acute process that's going on that caused this seizure. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point because usually when a patient comes in with a known seizure history um, and they've had yet another seizure and we'll see them again and again, often because of noncompliance, we got to kind of remind ourselves that, you know what, this time it can be different. It's like the frequent flyer psychiatric patient who comes in with chest pain all the time. One time they're going to come in with a real MI. So what are the kinds of questions that you ask in particular in terms of how it's different? Like, how would you actually ask the, the patient or their, their family? So I start by asking whether they had any type of warning or aura and if, if that felt familiar to them or if it um, had any different features to it. And often patients might not remember their aura, but if there was something different, then they, they may bring that up and say, you know, I didn't know a seizure was coming because this was not what I usually feel when I have a seizure coming. Of course, some patients don't have any aura, so that isn't always helpful. And then the description from any witness can be really helpful. So in this instance where she had the head turning and the stiffening of the left arm first, is that a consistent feature? So especially any focal features, is that what is usually noticed? Or do they normally notice that the seizure is quite symmetric and bilateral on the onset? And so this would be quite different that that she had this head turn and stiffening. Yeah, we're going to get into why it's important if there's focal features and that progress to generalize or if it's just generalized uh, a bit later in the podcast. But of course, the first thing I think of if there's any focality whatsoever is that patient needs a CT head. Um, if this is what she typically does during her seizure, then no, I don't think she necessarily would. But yes, if it's a first seizure or if we don't have a good description of focality in the past, then certainly I think imaging would be very important. Okay, so focality is definitely something you want to kind of dig into in the history. I always want to know as well, especially in patients in, with epilepsy, why are they here today? Because most patients with epilepsy don't come to the emergency room every time they have a seizure. It's often because maybe they were out in public somewhere and someone called EMS and that's why they ended up there. Or if they're at home, it's usually because either something was different about their seizure or maybe they're having a cluster of seizures, so more frequent seizures than they usually have at home. So what made them worried about this one that they decided to come in today, I think is something that's really important to figure out. And then whether they noticed any obvious precipitant or trigger for the seizure. So some very common things would be sleep deprivation or increased stress in a patient who has epilepsy, of course, noncompliance. And that can be really hard to tease out. And it could be an hour after talking to them that they may finally admit to me that, no, they missed some doses of medication. So I try and be as non-judgmental as I can when I'm trying to figure out compliance and explain to them why it's important that I really know if they took their medication or not. That's a good pro tip. I like that. Just the non-judgmental part. Yeah. Um, in my experience, that 
definitely helps, you know, as soon as you approach the patient as, oh, so you forgot you're taking your medication again, hey, that's when you're going to be fighting the whole time to figure out whether they actually are compliant or not. For sure. Uh, And another important precipitant is whether there's any sort of intercurrent illness going on, anything systemic that sort of lowers their seizure threshold. So whether they have any recent fevers or even something like a, a cold or a flu or a GI illness, that can all make it more likely that someone who has epilepsy is going to have a seizure. So just trying to figure out if there's any reasons right now that they may be having increased seizures. Actually, that just kind of reminds me of uh, medications that lower your seizure threshold. So there are so many medications on that list as potential agents that can lower the seizure threshold. Usually that is is not a factor, although that would be something else I would ask, would be whether they've been on any new medications, and not just medications that might lower their seizure threshold, but medications that could potentially interact with their regular anti-seizure medications as well, so that maybe they've had a change in their level, even though the dose hasn't changed because something new has been added or taken away. Sure. Can, can you give us some examples of sort of the more common ones, like let's say your, your top three of medications? medications that might either lower this threshold or interact to some of the common interactions. It's one of the things in emergency medicine, we don't think too much about drug interactions and we probably should. So certainly Wellbutrin is something that we we commonly at least get asked the question. Someone had a seizure after they were on Wellbutrin. Do we think it was related? Um, antibiotics are something that I'm always a bit cautious about, although sometimes they can also do the opposite and they can increase the levels of anti-seizure medications and, and people might notice some toxicity from that, but it could interact and, and lower the effectiveness of them as well. All right. So those are two, you know, relatively common, especially the antibiotics we see, and we're starting people on antibiotics all the time in the emergency department. It's good to know that we should probably check if it would interact with their seizure medications. We've talked a little bit about some of the sort of historical features that you want to ask about. Um, Dr. Koblick, it's almost always helpful to have sort of a general approach to any emergency presentation rather than just kind of winging it. What's your approach to the patient who presents to the ED with a presumed seizure that's now resolved? Uh, we'll, we'll talk about the approach to the actively seizing patient in the next case, but this is a patient now as resolved as, let's say, almost back to baseline. What's your kind of general approach there are a variety of presentations in these patients. They can come in post-sictal. Um, they can be very drowsy, not able to answer many questions. And your approach there will be maybe slightly different to the patient who comes in on their phone, sitting up in bed, and very relaxed with normal vitals. Uh, for all of these patients, right off the bat, the safe thing to do, obviously, is your ABCD approach, your critical look, just the basics when it comes to emergency medicine. So make sure they're protecting their airway and their breathing. And I usually start with a full set of vitals. And in the seizure patient, you don't ever want to forget the glucose. Your ABCDEFG, don't ever forget the glucose. That Everybody gets that. After that, the IV axis is important because if they do seize again, you've got a good route to give your medications at that point. Then I usually go, you go through your history and your physical, and I have sort of a, a general groups of questions that I'll ask. I think, first of all, you want to confirm this was a seizure. There are seizure mimics out there, and apparently, Emerge Docs 
are not very good at uh, differentiating seizures from seizure mimics. A lot of people who end up at first seizure clinics do have inaccurate diagnoses. So I think we'll actually get into those specific questions in a little bit. Um, but that's one of the things I want to make sure. Was this a seizure or was this syncope? Was this a psychogenic non-epileptic uh, seizure? Was this TIA or an atypical migraine? Like there's a number of mimics out there that you can tease out with specific questions. My next stop is just getting more details about the seizure, like Dr. Regan mentioned. Um, specifically, was this a first seizure or is this a recurrent seizure? And again, not to get down on myself and my Merch colleagues, apparently we're no good at this either. There are a number of people when they're reassessed by neurology later on in the clinic and the neurologists, the epileptologists ask the right questions, they find subtle hints that this patient may have been having epileptic activity in the days, months, weeks, whatever, up and up until this generalized tonic-clonic seizure or whatever seizure brought them into the emergency department. Subtle questions like, have you had sensory changes which are consistent with the aura that you may have had this time? Or when you wake up in the morning, do you have these subtle jerky movements in your limbs, which might be myoclonus? There, these are subtle things where all of a sudden the patient who you think is presenting with a first seizure may actually have a very subtle chronic seizure disorder, which does affect investigations and whether I'm going to send them home on medications and where to go from there. So those are important questions. So my second stop in line. Also about any history of staring spells that might be consistent with absence seizures and could also be consistent with focal seizures with altered awareness as well or complex partial seizures. The terminology keeps changing just to make it interesting. And then for other focal onset seizures, as you mentioned, sensory changes, if there's ever even any subtle motor jerking in, in say, just a one limb or even in the hand um, that they can't control, history of deja vu or jamais vu, olfactory or gustatory hallucinations, and odd feelings of like an epigastric rising sensation which can be hard to describe sometimes, but those are um, a lot of the things that I would ask. And also whether they ever have been really bothered by flashing lights and felt really unwell with that and, and sort of needed to get out of that situation. Well, I, I've got to admit that I hardly ever ask any of those questions. <laughs> and I, I'm just thinking back I'm to right all the cases <laughs> now where someone comes with a, quote, first time seizure, unquote, and they've actually been you know, seizing all along, maybe not the full-blown tonic-clonic, uh, but that, yeah, that's, as you said, Dr. Koblick, that's going to really change your management and approach to the patient. All right, so, so far we've done our A, B, C, D, E, F, G, don't ever forget the glucose. I think that's the fourth time we've said that, which is a good thing. It's important. Because it's important, because I've also made the mistake of forgetting that one too. And we talked about ruling out seizure mimics. We'll get, we'll get into detail about that. And then first time versus recurrent seizures and some of those great little clinical pearls of how to sort out whether they've actually had some seizure activity leading up to this. All right. So what's, uh, what's your next step in your approach there, Dr. Koblick? So I think the next step, again, is to classify your type of seizure. And I'm not an epileptologist, uh, so I like to keep it pretty simple because there are you know, there are seizure types that I read about and I wouldn't even recognize them if I was having one. But basically, like, you know, is there an altered level of consciousness or not? Are there motor symptoms or no motor symptoms? Are these motor symptoms focal? 
Are they generalized or do they progress from focal to generalized? And did the duration of the seizure qualify for you know, status. And did this last longer than five minutes? Was this multiple seizures at a time without return to baseline? The answers to each of these questions, again, I, I try to ask questions that don't impact what I'm going to do in the emergency department. And these questions do. You know, focal seizures, the workup is different, especially if they're new. So all of these questions, it's just nice to get a general idea of what the seizures are. And of course, when you're talking to your neurology colleagues, they're going to want to know as well. That's great. I don't have to memorize the 747 different kinds of seizures or types of seizures. That's just good enough to categorize them as loss of consciousness or no loss of consciousness, motor symptoms or no motor symptoms, focal or generalized, or does it start focal and progress to generalize, and the duration, essentially. Those are really the key kind of categories then. All right. Next up in your uh, your approach? The next step for me is really to run through a differential and to work out whether this is a provoked or an unprovoked seizure. The things we look for in the emergency department, um, you know, common, reversible, or deadly or likely to recur, and the differential is long, but the important ones for you to know about are the ones with specific antidotes, sort of special seizures, secondary seizures, provoked seizures. And these ones, it's nice to be able to sort of rattle off and go through quickly, specifically if a patient is seizing in front of you. I like to divide my seizures up into sort of intracranial and systemic. Intracranial ones you'll pick up on a CT at a later date, and it's not usually something urgent you're going to do immediately in the department. But systemic, there's a lot of specific antidotes that you can use. So metabolically, hypoglycemia is a big one. Not super common, but if you identify it and treat it urgently, um, that can make the difference for your patient. Hyponatremia is a big one as well. I've seen a case following colonoscopy prep, uh, and these people get specifically hypertonic saline or uh, a couple amps of uh, bicarb if you don't have hypertonic saline on you. There are cases where you have hypocalcemia or hypomagnesemia. Uh, you can replace uh, those electrolytes and they can uh, prevent uh, further recurrence of the seizures. Those are the specific antidotes largely in the uh, metabolic cases. Perhaps sometimes if you're in uh, uremic renal failure, dialysis is going to be one of the answers you have. But in the emergency department, those are the specific metabolic ones with antidotes. Drugs and toxins, those can be huge. Um, there are a lot of uh, medications out there, specifically in overdose, that we can do something about specifically in the emergency department. TCA overdose, bicarbonate, uh, it would be your antidote. Anticholinergic overdoses, bicarbonate can help as well. Isoniazid, patients in isoniazid can have issues with persistent seizures, which don't resolve with the usual medications. And so the antidote to that would be pyridoxine. And in fact, you can actually get pyridoxine deficiency in alcoholics, uh, and pregnant women are uh, actually at higher risk of pyridoxine deficiency as well. So it's something to think about. And there are case reports out there of people who seize and seize and continue to seize, and eventually they give them pyridoxine because it's on their list and they stop seizing. Eclampsia is a big one. So any woman of childbearing age, you definitely have to think about that. Usually presents after 20 weeks of gestational age, but it can also present up until eight weeks postpartum. That's the real diagnostic dilemma with these patients. And the usual cocktail that we give in the emergency department, benzos, anti-epileptics, has been shown to be far insignificant, far inferior to a bolus dose and an infusion of magnesium sulfate. So that's something you really want to get collateral history for or a bedside ultrasound, because usually after 20 weeks, you can see something intrauterine. And lastly, although maybe it should be at the very top of the list, is your vitals. And you can go through your vitals pretty much stepwise to figure out what it is that may be causing uh, this seizure. Hypertension, uh, hypertensive encephalopathy with a resulting seizure is a hypertensive emergency and you need to acutely drop that blood pressure in the emergency department while you manage the seizure. There's also uh, hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy. Um, so patients are significantly hypoxic, they can seize from that as well. So 
you need to make sure that you can correct uh, the hypoxia while they're there in the emergency department. And uh, maybe lastly in the vitals, we're not really talking about febrile seizures in infants today, but adults uh, with significant elevated temperatures, certainly somebody who's been on ecstasy and they come in 42.5 Celsius, hyperthermia can certainly lower your seizure threshold and cause, cause seizures. Uh, and in this patient population, you want to do some aggressive cooling to get them down uh, to normal thermia in the emergency department. Just to review there in terms of the differential of the immediate life threats and things that you can do something about right away that aren't the usual seizure cocktail treatments. In the metabolic, there's glucose, there's hyponatremia, calcium, magnesium. Don't ever forget about the uh, eclampsia and postpartum especially is sometimes tricky. TCA overdoses and other toxins. Um, and then finally, uh, the vitals, which include hypertensive encephalopathy, uh, hypoxemia, and hyperthermia. All right, so we're slowly getting through your approach here, and we've talked about the differential, we've talked about the different seizure classifications, provoked or unprovoked, we've talked about whether it's a first-time seizure or recurrent seizure, that's important, whether it's a seizure in the first place. What's your approach to the workup of the patient who's come with a seizure to the emergency department? I think the bare minimum is usually glucose. You can send off uh, anti-epileptic levels um, if there has been a change in their baseline or if they're having more seizures recently or this has been a breakthrough, which is not normal for them. But oftentimes these patients who are at their baseline say, I feel fine. I just came here for a regular seizure. I want to go home. And you have this discussion with them. And I think it's appropriate um, as long as they understand and they've got good follow-up and they're taking their medications. Um, these people can go if they want to go. I've got no problems with that. But the investigations and the workup does change when you have patients who come in with, say, a first-time seizure, or they come in with an acute change, or they're systemically unwell, or something abnormal. So for these patients, usually for a first-time seizure, we can start with blood work, ECG, neuroimaging, plus or minus special tests. Now, if these people come in and they've returned to baseline with normal vitals and a normal exam, usually what I'll start with uh, is a panel of routine blood work, a CBC, lights, and creatinine. Uh, in women of childbearing age, they'll get an HCG. And I will order an ECG on everybody who comes into the emergency department with a, a loss of consciousness. And there is evidence out there that say that if you've got a normal workup and these are normal patients, these people are also going to get a CT of their head. And the majority of times, uh, it may be normal, but in the emergency department, the studies that show that uh, the CT of the head can be abnormal and change your management acutely in the emergency department in anywhere up to like 15% of cases. If somebody comes in with a normal exam, um, there's some suggestion that you can do a CT head at a later date, or you can get an MRI, MRI non-urgently as an outpatient. But for me, if I've got 15% of patients who are going to have something acutely different or something acutely abnormal in a CT head, I'm going to order it in the emergency department that day. All right. So that's some of the blood work and workup that you do to figure out what the underlying cause of the seizure is. What about the blood work that you would do for the sequelae of the seizure itself, you know, especially if it's a prolonged seizure. When you see a patient in the emergency department, you want to do two things, really. You want to figure out why they seized, 
and you want to figure out if there was any major sequelae from the seizure itself. So the two basic things that we're going to do there. We've talked a little bit about blood work to look for causes of seizures, at least the basic blood work. If they become, if they come in sick or abnormal vitals or, or, or other abnormal exam, we're going to expand that blood work. We can talk about that in a minute. But then we talk about the sequelae of the seizure itself and what we're going to do to assess for that. So I usually start off with the traumatic sequelae because these patients have usually gone through violent seizures. They may have fallen or they've been in altercations. People can seize and get in car accidents. If they come in post-ictal, I basically touch every bone and I move every joint because these patients aren't able to tell me what hurts, what doesn't hurt, what they've injured when they fell uh, at that point. Common things, uh, common traumatic sequelae from seizures. Um, you've all heard about uh, posterior glenohumeral dislocations, um, but sometimes it can be very subtle humeral fractures or femoral fractures. Head injuries are a big one. Usually we're CTing most of these people um, anyways, especially with first-time seizures or uh, alterations in their presentation. Uh, cervical spine injuries can be an issue or component of it. You want to get a really good history around what happened with the seizure, if they've got focal neurologic deficits, if they've got pain in their neck when they start to wake up. You know, these are all things that are going to prompt you to look at that C-spine closely and decide whether you need imaging in the emergency department at that step. Along with the traumatic injuries that you get in a seizure, you can worry about these sort of biochemical changes um, that people get, especially with prolonged seizures. Status epilepticus, I mean, people die from this hypoglycemia. They can become acidotic. They can get rhabdomyolysis. can get uh, acute kidney injury, which then can develop hyperkalemia. Uh, these people can aspirate. They can develop neurogenic pulmonary edema. The list goes on. You know, they get um, neurogenic cardiac injury and sudden cardiac collapse. One thing that always comes up is troponin, and I see people ordering troponins on patients with seizures or prolonged seizures, and I kind of wonder why they're doing that. And then I've also heard that, well, actually, these patients can actually have cardiac ischemia. Is that true? Can they have cardiac ischemia, and should we be ordering serial troponins on patients that come in with seizures? So that's a really good point to bring up, Anton. There is a specific population of people that you should probably be more worried about with underlying cardiac ischemia. And uh, these are the people that you'll be ordering, again, ECG, serial ECG, serial troponins on people who are older, I mean, greater than 50 years old, underlying cardiac risk factors or known coronary artery disease. These are the people that you may want to screen when they come in after a seizure because they can develop cardiac ischemia. There have been studies showing that in healthy patients, who have seizures, they almost certainly don't have elevated troponin if they don't have underlying ischemia. And an elevated troponin is not just a benign post-seizure blood work change. Um, that's something that should be investigated and followed up. Wow. So it's not the word that I hate, troponinitis. <laughs> no such thing in seizures. Right. Okay. So would it be fair to say that if a patient has cardiac risk factors and it's a first-time seizure or, or a prolonged seizure that we should be working them up and doing serial troponins and ECGs? I think prolonged seizures for sure. And the risk factors that we talked about, old coronary artery disease risk factors, or if they present with cardiac symptoms or ECG changes, we're going to get an ECG on almost all of these patients. First-time seizures in young, healthy patients uh, with any, without any of these risk factors, which are short and self-limited, I don't order troponins on a routine basis, but it's definitely something to think about with the red flags that we've just brought up. 
All right. So just to review the, your whole approach there, it's fantastic. So it's really kind of five things I'm going to break it down to. The first is to rule out a seizure mimic like syncope. That's the big one. And we'll talk about TIA and some other seizure mimics as well. Uh, number two is you got to figure out if it's a first-time seizure versus a recurrent seizure. That'll change your workup and treatment big time. Number three is to classify the seizure. Uh, not the specific type, but the general category. So focal versus generalized, motor versus non-motor, altered LOA or not. Uh, fourth, you got to look for the underlying cause and specifically the immediate life threats, which include metabolically glucose, sodium, calcium, magnesium. It includes the vital sign abnormalities of severe hypertension, so hypertensive encephalopathy, hypoxia, and hyperthermia, um, eclampsia, we can't forget that one, and then the talk stuff, especially things like TCA overdose. And then number five is to consider your workup in terms of uh, blood work, both for the underlying cause and for the sequelae of your seizure, um, and then CT plus minus LP. And then lastly, it's your disposition, which uh, we'll get into the details of the disposition a little bit later. Just a quick announcement that for all these main episode podcasts, we'll not only have the Just for Nuggets emails that review the key take-home points for a couple of weeks after the episode's released, but we'll also have about a dozen questions in our quiz vault so that you can test yourself on the key take-home points and etch them into your huge brains. And those questions will be available also two or three weeks after the podcast is released on the EMCase's website. Just hit the quiz vault in the navigation bar. Let's dig deeper a little bit into seizure mimics. And the big one is syncope. So it, it turns out that we attribute cardiac syncope to seizure in about 10 to 20% of patients who we label as having a seizure. Now, that's a bit scary because many of these cardiac syncope patients are, are at high risk of death. So it's really important to distinguish seizure from syncope so we don't mistakenly send home a patient with cardiac syncope thinking that they had a seizure that they fully recovered from. In fact, a significant number of patients who are told that they have a seizure disorder actually do not. This may be one reason we see patients on anticonvulsants who continue to seize, actually. So one of the common reasons we mix up seizure and syncope is that up to one-fifth of patients with syncope will have a few myoclonic jerks, which are mistaken as a seizure, right? But Dr. Reed, can you give us some of the really key kind of clinical nuances on how to distinguish a seizure from syncope? So the first thing I try and get a history from the patient is exactly what they felt at the beginning of this. And I'm really trying to tease out whether they might have had any presyncopal symptoms or any sort of aura or suggestion of a focal onset seizure. So I'm asking them whether they had anything like any palpitations, if they felt dizzy or lightheaded, if, if they noticed that they had diaphoresis, if anyone told them that their skin color was changing, or if they had anything like a sense of deja vu or, again, some of these olfactory or gustatory hallucinations, they might have noticed that they had some myoclonic jerks 
before they went to the ground. So certainly in syncope, if they're going to have um, myoclonic jerks or any abnormal movements, it would usually be after they've hit the ground, whereas they can precede that, precede the loss of awareness in a seizure. So that's important to try and differentiate. Anyone notice that they had any odd behaviors before they actually lost consciousness? Were they doing anything weird, whether that's they were saying odd things, they weren't talking properly as if they had some sort of aphasia, if they had any sort of automatisms like lip smacking or manual automatisms, like they were wringing their hands or picking at things. And then, of course, any description you can get of what actually happened while the patient was on the ground, Um, the duration of the event. So usually, although seizures are brief, syncope will usually be shorter than a seizure. A seizure can often be between one and two minutes, and syncope is usually briefer than that. And then what were they like afterwards? So was there any sort of postictal confusion? What is the first thing that the patient remembered um, when they woke up? Did they remember being in the ambulance or in the hospital is more suggestive that it might have been the seizure, whereas if they remember kind of waking up and everyone being around them and um, and they can really give you good details of that, then then that would be more in keeping with syncope as well. Um, We always ask about incontinence, although I don't know that that's actually that great in differentiating the two, but we do ask about that. Tongue biting is um, definitely something that would be more supportive of a diagnosis of a seizure, especially lateral tongue biting. The literature actually states a specificity of 100% in someone who presents with an altered level of awareness, a brief episode that a lateral tongue bite is actually 100% specific for a seizure. So that's useful. Although the sensitivity is only like 25%. So if you don't get the tongue bite, then you're you're still searching. Okay. Actually, the, the one thing I find pretty helpful is to ask if they come in via EMS is to ask them what the initial vitals were. Because usually in a syncope patient, usually the blood pressure is low and the heart rate sometimes low as well. Whereas almost always in a seizure patient, the heart rate and the blood pressure are going to be high. So that that can help differentiate a little bit as well. Anything else in terms of differentiating syncope from seizure? There can be rare cases where seizures can lead to bradycardia or even ictole systole, particularly in uh, some temporal lobe seizures. So again, that is not uh, necessarily very sensitive, but it definitely usually see a higher heart rate, but not always. All right. That's a good nuance to know. When it comes to tongue biting again, so the lateral tongue biting is a thing that happens in seizures, but I understand that uh, patients with psychogenic seizures quite often actually bite their tongues, but usually it's the tip of the tongue. Is that true? Correct. So they they may well describe biting the tip of the tongue or biting their inside of their lip as well. Okay. So that's something that, you know, we don't want to get confused there that if someone with a psychogenic seizure comes in and has the tip of their tongue bitten, that's not what's 100% specific for a true ictal seizure, of course. So it's the lateral tongue biting. Can you tell us a little bit more about the importance of asking witnesses about what the eyes were doing during the seizure. Because, you know, the eyes are the entryway to the soul. But in terms of seizures, they can actually give us a lot of information as to whether this was a true seizure or not, eh? Sure. So one of the most 
helpful things for me when it comes to eyes is whether there's any horizontal deviation that both points to some focality, but it, it also really just suggests that it's seizures, whereas vertical deviation, so eyes rolling up or back, can happen with syncope, can happen with non-epileptic seizures as well. Um, flickering eyelids can be helpful. I think we would expect that more in seizures than we would in syncope, but there are definitely a lot of cases of non-epileptic seizures where patients will flicker or flutter their eyelids quite dramatically. So that's not always helpful for that uh, differential. And then another thing would be sort of a blank stare, staring off before they actually lost consciousness can can sometimes be helpful um, in suggesting a seizure as well. Okay, so just to review there, so flickering eyelids can be seen in seizures, but they're also seen in psychogenic non-epileptic seizures, so you've got to be careful there. The deviated gaze to one side or the other is quite suggestive of a seizure versus syncope, whereas the eyes rolling back is more syncope, although I guess some seizures can have the eyes rolling back as well. Again, not a slam dunk, but but very helpful if there's a lateral gaze. Um, the blank stare before they lose consciousness would favor seizure rather than syncope. And I wouldn't want to forget whether the eyes were actually open or closed. So often patients who are having non-epileptic seizures will close their eyes, which we don't usually see in a true epileptic seizure. So we've talked about the big seizure mimic, which is syncope. And we've talked a little bit about psychogenic non-epileptic seizures as one of the mimics. The other big seizure mimics are TIA and migraine. Can you just go through for us how you distinguish those, those the TIA and migraine from a seizure? Sure. So some of the things to think about are the timing of the onset, especially if there is any sort of march to any motor or sensory symptoms. So in a TIA, which usually has negative phenomena, meaning that there is a loss of something, so numbness or weakness, as opposed to seizures that usually have positive phenomena, so extra movements or funny sensations. Um, But in a TIA, usually these symptoms are sort of instantaneous. So it doesn't, say, start in the face and move to the arm. Whereas in a seizure, um, we can have a march usually over a matter of seconds where something can travel to different parts of the body. And then in a migraine, this march can often take minutes. So it's much slower. Um, So that can be something that can be helpful for us as well. So just to clarify there, we've all learned that migraines march, but migraines march generally much slower than whatever neurologic phenomena that happens in a seizure. They'll, it'll go through much faster. Yes, for okay. sure. And then with the TIA, it's the negative symptoms uh, we want to talk about. Both seizure and migraine have positive symptoms generally, right? Right. Okay. Although one instance where you can have negative symptoms can be actually after the seizure where you can have a Todd's paresis or paralysis, and that can make it a bit harder as well to differentiate it from a TIA or from a stroke. All right. So that one in particular is a tough one. So distinguishing a Todd's paralysis from someone who's had a stroke, I suppose if someone's had a very obvious witnessed tonic-clonic seizure and you're sure that it's a tonic-clonic seizure and they have a focal neurologic deficit, you can assume that that's a Todd's paralysis. But 
we don't often have such a clear history of someone who's had a transient loss of consciousness. Dr. Kolbuck, do you have any words of wisdom when it comes to distinguishing Todd's paralysis from someone who's had a long TIA or, or a stroke? Because, uh, you know, obviously their, their treatment's going to be very different. Yeah, so essentially Todd's paralysis is a post-ictal transient neurologic deficit. It can vary anywhere from um, focal motor deficit, which can be weakness to hemiparesis. You can get a gaze deviation, hemineglect, aphasia. There's a number of different ways that this can present, and they can last anywhere from seconds to minutes to hours to days. If you've got a really good story of seizure, generalized tonic-clonic seizure, somebody's witnessed it, the patient um, has a history of seizure, this is not entirely new for them, you can usually be pretty happy that the focal neurologic deficit will either be something like a Todd's paralysis, or again, there could be like new intracranial changes that are part of it, but it's, it's less likely an ischemic stroke. If your story of the seizure isn't perfectly clear, um, if there are questions or concerns, if you've got an elderly patient who has got risk factors for stroke, these are the people you might want to be more careful with because in the end, a stroke is managed very differently, is very time sensitive, whereas Todd's paralysis is something which you're going to receive supportive care for and should resolve over a period of time. So I think with those patients which have got a slightly less clear history, more risk factors, it makes sense to at least talk to your stroke team to have a discussion about what is going on and where to go from here. And if that's urgent transport, then so be it. Sounds perfectly reasonable to me. We've talked a lot about the historical features that help us sort out whether or not it's a true seizure. Uh, but sometimes there's no reliable eyewitness and we don't really have much to go on, which is one of the reasons why we often misdiagnose seizures in the first place. That brings us to the value of blood work and trying to sort out whether it was a true seizure or not. One of the tests I see done quite often in this regard is a lactate. And the theory goes that a lactate will rise rapidly with a true seizure and then it'll decrease rapidly after the true seizure. And if you do serial lactates, then you'll see this rise and fall in the lactate and then you'll know it's a true seizure. Dr. Koblick, what does the literature tell us about how good or not good doing a lactate in this situation is, is it worth doing a lactate in those equivocal cases if you can't figure out if it, if it was a true seizure or not? So there are a number of studies out there uh, looking for biomarkers to differentiate seizures, usually from syncope or um, psychogenic non-epileptic seizures. Lactate has gotten a lot of attention. Theoretically, lactate is produced by these hypoxic muscle cells, anaerobic metabolism, and most studies uh, will look at lactate within the first two hours after the seizure. This initial elevation in lactate uh, can be paired with a repeat lactate within the next hour or two, which shows the lactate trending down at that time. There are uh, multiple different cutoffs that have been used uh, for a lactate level. One study has used a lactate level of 2.43, uh, millimoles per liter, and they found that in men drawn within two hours of the seizure, this value, a positive lactate, has got a sensitivity, sensitivity of 0.85 and a specificity of 0.88. There are 
Other reasons why you can have elevated lactate in patients who might seize, sepsis uh, with infection, uh, hepatic disease, people who are alcoholics. There's a number of reasons why the lactate can stay elevated. But certainly if you see the spike and then a drop, it's usually a fairly good sign that you're dealing with an epileptic seizure. But it's not at this point something you can really hang your head on. Okay, so fair enough to say that in those cases that are really equivocal where you're really not sure if it was a seizure or not, or you suspect a uh, psychogenic non-epileptic seizure, that might be the time to get serial lactates to see if there's a big rise and then a sudden drop. While the sensitivity isn't very good, uh, the specificity is at least in the high 80s. I would just say that it's another data point. Oh, your history, your physical, everything that's been going on, your full workup, if you've got a lactate that rises and falls, you can add that in there and hopefully it helps with your decision making. Absolutely. The other biomarkers that, that people have suggested for sorting out whether it's a true seizure or not are CK and ammonia and prolactin. I can't remember the last time I ordered an ammonia level any value to trending CK or ammonia or prolactin to help sort out whether a patient's had a true seizure or not? So there's a lot of studies out there trying to find these biomarkers that can confirm for sure that you have had a uh, epileptic seizure. And really the bottom line is, is that none of them are um, good enough to 100% rule out a seizure or really 100% rule in a seizure Prolactin specifically has shown some benefit um, when drawn within the first like 10 to 20 minutes after a seizure to differentiate between the psychogenic seizures. It's no good when you're comparing epileptic seizures to syncope. CK will usually rise up to a day later, um, so it's not something we're going to be using acutely in the emergency department at this point. And ammonia has maybe been presented as this intermittent like three to eight hour stopgap. Again, I wouldn't say it's ready to specifically rule in a rule out a seizure at this point. There's a number of other markers that people have looked at as well, but the bottom line is if you're really looking for a biomarker, it's just going to be a, a data point. It's going to be something that you're going to take into consideration in the context of the entire case of the presentation. It's not something that you should really be 100% ruling in or ruling out a seizure with. I want to get a little bit deeper into the psychogenic non-epileptic seizures. We see these quite often, actually. What are the most important aspects of the psychogenic non-epileptic seizure that emergency doctors need to know about? So psychogenic non-epileptic seizures are not due to abnormal electrical activity in the brain like an epileptic seizure is. I think a very important thing for everyone to keep in mind is that these patients are not faking it. They're not malingering. This is something that they cannot control. And it can be very hard to differentiate a non-epileptic from an epileptic seizure. Even as epileptologists, it can be very difficult for us. And studies have shown that of the patients we bring into the epilepsy monitoring unit, where we're doing continuous 24-hour video EEG recordings, 20 to 25% of these patients actually end up having psychogenic non-epileptic seizures and they don't have epilepsy. So really video EEG is the gold standard and it can be very hard in the emergency room or even for me sometimes in the clinic having these patients having an event right in front of me and I cannot say for sure whether it is a seizure or not. It's also important to remember that 
definitely some patients who have epilepsy also have coexistent non-epileptic events. And sometimes they cannot differentiate between which are epileptic and which are non-epileptic. So it's not as easy as just asking them, which type of event do you think you just had? Um, So there are some features that we look at to try and help make this diagnosis on the clinical basis. Some of that is the duration of the event. So psychogenic non-epileptic seizures are usually longer than true epileptic seizures, which usually don't last more than two to three minutes. These non-epileptic events can last you know, minutes, 10 minutes, a half an hour, sometimes an hour. Often they're waxing and waning because I think they can be a bit tiring for the patient. Um, We often see non-rhythmic or asynchronous movements where they have bilateral movements, but one side of the body is not moving at the same time as the other. Sometimes they are talking during these events. And certainly once the activity would have spread to be bilateral in a true seizure, someone should not be able to talk at that point. Um, So that can be helpful as well. We sometimes get these descriptions of pelvic thrusting or these bicycling movements of the legs. That is suggestive of non-epileptic seizures, although we have to remember that in particular frontal lobe seizures can have these sort of odd, bizarre movements as well. So can make it a little bit more difficult. And many of these patients with non-epileptic seizures do have an underlying psychiatric diagnosis, usually depression or anxiety. Sometimes they've been diagnosed with personality disorders as well. And they often have a history of some sort of trauma, whether that's physical or emotional or sexual abuse. Um, That definitely seems to be a risk factor, although it can sometimes be a risk factor for epileptic seizures as well. And often non-epileptic seizures are precipitated by an acute emotional stress, which we don't really see in epileptic seizures. So they might happen when they're in the middle of having a fight with someone. Um, And while there are some very rare reflex epilepsies where that could happen, usually it's more chronic stress that could bring on an epileptic seizure, whereas these non-epileptic seizures can be precipitated acutely by a strong emotional response. I just want to say, like, I love your first point about they're not faking it. They're not trying to get a day off of school. In the emergency departments, you probably won't see the kind of counter-transference you see when you have a whole team of nurses and respiratory therapists and two or three doctors who are dealing with somebody who they think may or may not be in status epilepticus and eventually something manifests that lets you figure out that this is a psychogenic seizure and people get upset you know, we're really worried about this patient. We're worried about what we're going to do and how we're going to manage them. And they look very, very sick. And then people realize that this is non-epileptic seizures. And people get very, very emotional, I think, uh, around these cases. And I think it's just important to remember that these people are very sick too. So it was really important to 
have a good chunk of time to go over this diagnosis with them. It's not something that you can just go in, tell them you don't have epileptic seizures and leave. Like It requires quite a discussion. There's often a lot of pushback um, and a lot of patients sometimes are not very accepting of this diagnosis. And even when you give it to them, they say, oh, you think I'm faking it. And, and you really have to explain that that is not what we mean. We, we don't think that they are malingering. And then we really go over how this is a good diagnosis is better than having epileptic seizures because it means that their brain is working properly. We explain to them that we still don't know a lot about non-epileptic seizures and exactly what causes someone to have it at any given time. And then we focus on the fact that cognitive behavioral therapy is really the only therapy that has been proven to be beneficial, but that over time, patients can get control of these events and can sometimes stop having them altogether. And that really it's not medication that is needed for treating these events. And that just puts them at risk for for side effects and is not doing anything to prevent the events themselves. I don't think this is a diagnosis um, that can be easily made in the emergency room, although sometimes patients keep presenting to the emergency room even when they've been given a diagnosis of non-epileptic seizures, and that can be a difficult situation as well. Um, We try and tell them they do not need to do that, um, but sometimes they end up there anyways. And I can imagine that you have a patient in front of you who is having these convulsive movements can be, you know, quite scary as to whether you need to do anything about it. And unfortunately, these patients sometimes do get intubated and they go to the ICU. I really think it is going to be a matter of of your clinical judgment when you have the patient there. And I think you always need to err on the side of caution. If you really are suspicious that this is an epileptic seizure, you can't just let that go. All right. When in doubt, don't assume that it's a psychogenic seizure. You really need to have all your ducks in a row with all the features present with none of the features of a true epileptic seizure to really confidently say in the emergency department, at least that it's a psychogenic seizure. I want to talk a little bit about drug levels and adjusting drugs for patients with known epilepsy who come in with a seizure. So first, Dr. Reed, which anticonvulsants can we or should we get drug levels on in the ED? So there are a lot of anti-seizure medications that we can get levels on, and some of them will be more helpful to you in the emergency room, and some of them will be more helpful to me when I see my patient later in follow-up. So the ones that we can do that we can get back quickly while you still have the patient in the emergency room would be phenytoin, valproic acid, carbamazepine and phenobarbital, I would say, would be um, the quickest ones. And those might alter your management of the patient in the emergency room. There are some others that will help me later when I see the patient. So things like lamotrigine levels, some places will do levetiracetam levels as well, clobazam levels, oxcarbazepine. So those are some that will help me with compliance, but are probably not going to be very helpful in the emergency room. All right. So again, it's uh, phenytoin, carbamazepine, and valproate, and phenobarb that will be helpful in the emergency department for us. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't be doing those other levels, especially if the patient's going to be following up 
in an epilepsy clinic or with a neurologist, it'll be helpful for them. So it might be worth drawing in the emergency department. It's just not going to affect how we manage them immediately. Now, this might get into the weeds a little bit, but one of the troubles that I have in the emergency department is I do, a, let's say, a phenytoin level. It comes back and, I mean, it's easy when it's supra-therapeutic and it's easy when it's non-detectable because then I know that if it's non-detectable, I can just load them up. But what I find difficult with is the patient that has maybe a slightly sub-therapeutic dilantin level. How do you go about adjusting medications? Are there any kind of quick and easy rules that we can go by in terms of adjusting? Phenytoin's a common one. Carbamazepine is another common one. Valproate's another common one. How do we actually interpret those levels? So it's definitely a good idea to check anti-seizure medication levels in the emergency room. Um, one of the most important things is that we can be looking for whether the patient is compliant with their medications or not. It can also be very useful to compare the level that you get to historical values if you have access to them, because maybe this patient typically runs at the higher end of the normal range. And even if they're in the normal range now, but a bit lower, maybe they do need a top up of their medication. But overall, this can be a very complicated issue, especially if patients are on multiple anti-seizure medications. Um, so sometimes, you know, it will take a call to the neurologist to, to try and get some advice on what to do because it is a complicated matter. Okay. So I shouldn't feel so bad when I'm calling up the neurologist with the patient that comes in on three different meds and I've done the levels and I just have no idea how to adjust their medication levels. Not at all. All right. Cool. We will have in the show notes some of the typical loading doses for the more common anti-seizure medications, which when you do get that level of zero, that undetectable level of drug and you know the patient is non-compliant and you need to load them up, we'll have all that in the show notes. Dr. Reed, besides the status patient, which patients with seizures require an EEG fairly urgently? And this this will come into play for disposition. Like how quickly do we need to get these patients with seizures to a neurologist to get an EEG? Or if we can book an EEG ourselves, are there any subset of patients that need an EEG urgently? No. So as you mentioned, the most important thing is status epilepticus, even after treated status to make sure it hasn't converted to non-convulsive status epilepticus. Any patient who's presenting with a new first-time seizure or a significant change in their seizure pattern should have an EEG, but that doesn't need to be usually done urgently or kept as an inpatient only to get that test. We do know that there is a higher yield in the EEG if it is done sooner after having the seizure. Um, and ideally, we would get them within 24 hours, but that is very difficult to do. And, and even I don't have access to those sorts of resources. So often either referring them to a first seizure clinic, which will, will get them the EEG or arranging for an outpatient EEG. In many places, I think that could usually be done within a week or two is usually good enough. All right. That's interesting. I didn't know that. The earlier you do the EEG after the seizure, the higher the sensitivity will be. That's really good to know because I think we, we don't really think about the timing of the EEG much in the emergency department, but the sooner the better, essentially. 
although realistically they're getting it within a week or two. Let's talk a little bit more about disposition. So Dr. Koblick, let's say we've got a patient with a first time seizure out of the blue. Let's say he's not an alcohol withdrawal seizure. He's not sick, sick, sick. Can any patients with the first time seizure be sent home safely? To flip it around, in other words, what are the admission criteria after a first unprovoked seizure? So for the first time seizure patient that you see in the emergency department, I would say it's safe to send them home with the following criteria. Essentially, it has to be a single generalized seizure and they have to have an otherwise normal history and physical. They should be a baseline in the emergency department, normal vital signs, and they shouldn't have any other major complications. They shouldn't be a complicated patient. So we're talking about elderly patients. We're talking about significant cardiovascular disease. We're talking about immunocompromise on medications, which which may be precipitating seizures. We're talking about young, healthy, back at baseline, and nothing else, no other red flags. And these people can be sent home. There's also the consideration about whether they understand and they can arrange follow-up with the neurologist as an outpatient. So uh, people who have cognitive impairment, people who are homeless, you know, maybe they're by themselves and they have significant language barriers. Um, You really want to make sure that they're not going to slip through the cracks and that no matter what, they are able to follow up in this clinic as an outpatient. Usually you want to make sure that there's somebody around them, a responsible adult, who could help them if they do have a seizure within the next, say, 24 hours. It's hard to arrange a responsible adult for the next couple of weeks until you're seen in the neurology clinic, but at least the next 24 hours are important. I've seen studies quote the possible recurrence of a seizure within the next 24 hours in patients who are, again, not alcohol-related seizures of about 9%. So it's nice to have somebody there to look after them for the first 24 hours at least. Sounds reasonable. That brings us nicely into the first-time seizure whether or not those patients need to be loaded up on an anti-seizure medication. So young, healthy person comes in, first-time seizure, you're quite sure it's a generalized tonic-clonic seizure, let's say it lasted for a couple of minutes. The first question would be, do you load them up on an anti-seizure medication or are they safe not to be loaded up and just followed up in a neurology clinic? So usually with a first-time seizure, patients are not started on anti-seizure medications unless they are deemed to have a significant risk of having a recurrent seizure. So about 10% of people will have a seizure in their lifetime, whereas only 05 to 1% will actually have epilepsy or recurrent seizures. So how do we predict who those patients that are most at risk are? And that's usually through our imaging and EEG If there is a structural abnormality on the imaging or if there are epileptiform abnormalities on the EEG, then those would suggest that the risk of recurrence is higher than 60%. And we can actually now make a diagnosis of epilepsy without having a second seizure if we have those findings on testing. Usually... Those things may not be even done in the emergency room, especially the EEG. So in the emergency setting, I would say it really would be if the patient has already had more than one seizure or if they have a structural abnormality on their imaging, putting them at risk. So that could be something like a bleed or if they've already had a stroke, then 
chances are they're at a higher risk again of having more seizures. Um, If they have a tumor, if they have a remote history of trauma, and you can see encephalomalacia or other traumatic changes on their imaging, things that are not going to go away and are going to continue to be there and be risk factors for having seizures, then I would start that patient on anti-seizure medication even after the first seizure. So I guess pristine CT, pristine blood work, pristine patient, no meds. Correct. Okay. I think there's going to be some practice variation. I do know there are physicians out there who are starting almost everyone with a first-time seizure, whether that's a little bit overly defensive. Do you guys have any literature to back up not loading someone up for a first-time seizure who's back to baseline? So there was a Cochrane uh, review in 2016. Essentially, the bottom line of the review is that treatment of the first unprovoked seizure will reduce the risk of subsequent seizures, but it's not necessarily what you'd say is a disease-modifying treatment in that it's not going to affect the proportion of patients in remission in the long term. Anti-epileptic drugs are also associated with significant side effects. So there's always that balance between uh, the risk and the benefit of starting people on these medications. So the summary of the review is that, you know, in light of this, the decision to start these medications should be individualized. Um, And I wouldn't necessarily shotgun all my patients who have had a first seizure and start them on these medications. It's probably something that's going to take a little bit more of a, a detailed conversation in the emergency department. And certainly there are some patients who would like to be started on medication. The risk to them of having another seizure, um, whether it's at work or they want to get back to driving more quickly, they would like to take a seizure medication sooner than later and lower that risk of having another seizure, even if we can't say really definitively whether that would ever happen or not. So it certainly is a very individualized thing, and you should discuss it with the patient. But even the guidelines from the American Academy of Neurology really suggest that um, it's only those patients, and again, they, they quote, the risk of greater than 60% chance of recurrence that need to be started after the first seizure. Hmm. I think that'll be practice changing for a lot of physicians out there. So the next question when it comes to, let's say you do decide to load the patient up, is it best to load them up with IV medications or PO medications? And which medication would you suggest that we use for loading patients who have had a first time seizure uh, in the emergency department who, for whatever reason, we're deciding to load them up? Usually, I would say we can probably get away with an oral load. If we do an IV load of many medications, that can make patients quite fatigued, and sometimes they can have some ataxia or dizziness or double vision with this, so likely you're going to need to keep them in longer to monitor them after you do an IV load. So often, if it's been just a single seizure, an oral load should be fine. While there's not one uh, right answer that will necessarily fit every patient, one of my favorite go-to options is to use levetiracetam. Um, So there's a number of benefits to this. It is an appropriate drug to use for either focal onset or primary generalized seizures. There is a low risk of interactions with other medications and of side effects, 
And it is also not as expensive as it used to be, which is really beneficial as well. The one thing to really watch out for with that medication is if you do have a patient with psychiatric comorbidities, it can sometimes exacerbate that. And so you always need to talk with your patients about that. Okay. So it sounds like Keppra or Levetiracetam. Did I say it right? Yeah. Levetiracetam. It's a mouthful. <laughs> it's a mouthful. It sounds like Keppra is is your loading anti-epileptic drug of choice for the first time seizure from the emergency department for the reasons that you outlined. How do you actually load it in the emergency department? So you can give an oral load with 1,500 milligrams, and then you can continue patients on between 500 and 1,000 milligrams BID. All right. Simple enough. I like that. Let's move on to discharge. So we've talked about loading patients up for the first time seizure, and we've talked a bit about drug levels and adjusting medications. What are your discharge instructions going to be for the patient with a seizure who you're sending home? Dr. Koblick? So discharge instructions for these patients um, essentially focuses around them having another seizure and what they can do to limit the impact that that's going to have or the, the danger associated with having another seizure. So I usually advise them against things like swimming. They should avoid going up on ladders or at heights. I will, in Ontario, I'll be reporting their driver's license, so they shouldn't be driving until they're seen by a neurologist. Things like operating heavy machinery, um, and we'll, we'll sort of figure out what they do for work, and we'll talk about things to worry about there. Does this person have a young child at home? Should they be careful when they're bathing their infant? Any point where if they have a seizure and it can impair the safety of themselves or somebody they care for is something to be really careful about. And I think that it's important to have that discussion with the patient. As well as if you do start them on, of course, anti-epileptics, we talk about sort of side effects to expect. So I find that if people are aware of the side effects and they're expecting them, and when they come, they're less likely to discontinue their medication, they're more likely to be compliant with it at the time. Good point. I want to talk specifically about the driving part because that seems to come up all the time and the guidelines are going to be different in different jurisdictions. So let's just talk about in Ontario, what exactly is our duty as physicians for a patient who's had one seizure in terms of reporting to the Ministry of Transport? So in Ontario, unlike some of the other provinces, we do have mandatory reporting. So by law, anyone who is 16 or over who has a seizure or any type of event that would interfere with their ability to drive does need to be reported to the Ministry of Transportation. And that's patients who don't have a driver's license either. So even if you have, say, a 17-year-old who never got their driver's license, they still need to be reported. So everyone needs to be reported, and the minimum is going to be at least three months after a seizure, and that's provided that their investigations are normal and they don't have another seizure. All right. Very important stuff to know. And again, that's in Ontario. It's really important, I guess, wherever you're working to find out exactly what the law says about our duty to report. All right, let's do the big take-home point summary. Here we go. First, history nuances. You've got to ask, was there a warning or aura? Was there a witness who can give a detailed description of the seizure? Were there any focal features? Were there any obvious triggers like sleep deprivation, noncompliance, 
intercurrent illness or new medication interactions? Was this a first-time seizure or a recurrent seizure? And even if it was a first-time seizure, asking specifically about subtle motor and sensory phenomena or staring spells or hallucinations in the previous weeks or months prior to presenting to the ED, that'll make a difference to your management. Next, it's important to classify the seizure as altered LOA or not, motor symptoms or not, focal or generalized, and finally, duration of more than five minutes or not. It's status epilepticus if it's more than five minutes. Next, was the seizure provoked or unprovoked? Have that list of immediate life threats with specific antidotes that aren't the usual seizure cocktail etched into your memory. First, there's the vital sign extremes. Hypoxia, hypertensive encephalopathy, and hyperthermia. Next, the metabolic stuff. ABCDEFG, don't ever forget the glucose, that's hypoglycemia, hyponatremia, hypomag, and hypocalcemia. Then there's talks like TCA or sympathomimetic overdose. Pretty much any poisoning can cause a seizure. And one thing we didn't mention was to consider lipid emulsion therapy for all those lipophilic overdoses. And finally, eclampsia, which can occur, remember, up to eight weeks postpartum and requires MAG. What about for the lab work? For lab work, think about both the causes and the complications of seizures like rhabdo and acidosis, as well as considering serial troponins in at-risk patients and serial lactates if you're not sure if it was a true seizure or not. And finally, there's the drug levels, both the ones that you can get back immediately and those that might be helpful for the follow-up doc. Next, what about CT? Have a low threshold for CT head for first-time seizure patients and for alcoholics who present with withdrawal seizures because up to 15% of these patients will have management-changing findings on their CT. How do you distinguish seizure from syncope that we get wrong more than we'd like to think? Start with the EMS initial vitals. If EMS got to them in a few minutes and it's syncope, you'd expect usually a low blood pressure and maybe a low heart rate. Whereas with a seizure, usually the blood pressure and heart rate are elevated. Although keep in mind that rarely some types of seizure can cause bradycardia. Presyncopal symptoms like lightheadedness, diaphoresis, pale skin are very different to seizure auras with symptoms like olfactory or gustatory hallucinations, odd behaviors, lip smacking, or a blank stare. Ask about the eyes during the event. If there was a lateral deviation or flickering eyelids, more likely a seizure. If there was vertical deviation, more likely syncope. If a few myoclonic jerks happen before they lose consciousness, that's a seizure, whereas if they happen after they hit the ground, that's probably syncope. And those myoclonic jerks that happen when a patient syncopizes often get mislabeled as a seizure. And then also to figure out syncope versus seizure, there's duration. Syncope is usually less than a minute, while seizures are usually at least one minute in duration. And then afterwards, you've got to ask, was there post-ictal confusion and or amnesia? And finally, was there lateral tongue biting, which has a 100% specificity for seizure in the patient who loses consciousness transiently? 
do remember that urinary incontinence doesn't really have much discriminatory power at all. Now, what about to distinguish TIA from seizure? Well, TIAs usually have a truly abrupt onset of negative phenomena. So a loss of sensation or a loss of power, whereas a seizure or a migraine, they usually march. The motor or sensory symptoms progress over time and migrate through the body with that marching happening faster in a seizure compared to a migraine. Now, what about Todd's paralysis? Todd's paralysis is a tough nut to crack in terms of differentiating it from a TIA or stroke. So Todd's paralysis, remember, first of all, is very rare. It happens after the seizure and can last anywhere from seconds to days. Now, if you have a perfect story for a seizure, you can be pretty confident that it's Todd's paralysis. But if the story is unclear or the patient is at really high risk for a stroke, it's advisable to get on the phone with your stroke team or neurologist to help you sort out whether the patient is a candidate for thrombolysis or endovascular therapy. Get help. Now, when it comes to differentiating a true epileptic seizure from a psychogenic non-epileptic seizure, the most important point is this. When in doubt, assume true seizure. However, if everything is pointing to a psychogenic seizure, a previous history of psychogenic seizures, eyes closed during the seizure, talking during the seizure, regular bicycling-type movements or pelvic thrusts during the seizure if it's triggered by an acute emotional event, and if there's no rise in the lactate right after the seizure, then you can be pretty assured that you're dealing with a psychogenic seizure and not status epilepticus. And the second most important point when it comes to psychogenic seizures is that the patient is not malingering. They have a real illness that needs to be addressed by compassionate counseling and referring them for cognitive behavioral therapy. Let's talk drug levels. So when it comes to drug levels, unless they're not detectable at all, in which case you know the patient's non-compliant, they really are difficult to interpret. Get help from the neurologist. And think about drug interactions when interpreting levels, especially common ones like antibiotics and Welbutrin. In terms of loading up the patient in the emergency department, oral loading of Keppra is probably your safest bet. The dose is 1,500 milligrams loading dose, then 500 to 1,000 milligrams BID for home. But remember that the first-time unprovoked seizure patients who are back to baseline and suitable for discharge do not need to be loaded on anti-seizure medications, and that's supported by guidelines. Now, what about an EEG? What are the indications for an urgent EEG? Well, Status patients and post-status patients need an EEG like now. And then there's the first-time unprovoked seizure patients and seizure patients with a change in their pattern of seizure. They should also get an EEG, ideally in the next few days, because the sooner the EEG is done, the more accurate it'll be. Realistically, we can usually only get these done in a week or two, but do remember that the sooner the better. Okay, we're near the end here. Finally, Good discharge instructions can be life-saving. Patients need to know not to swim, not to bathe themselves or a baby in a bathtub, not to climb heights, not to operate heavy machinery, and definitely not to drive. In Ontario, it's mandatory to report anyone 16 years of age or older who's had a seizure to the Ministry of Transport 
regardless of whether or not they have a driver's license. All right, well, that about wraps up part one of our podcast on seizures. Part two is going to be all about the management of the actively seizing patient of status epilepticus and all the controversies and options of how to manage these patients. And until next time, in the words of Barbara Tatum, be kind, make waves. Thank you.